Listen, anyone's birthday in the month of April? Raise your hand if it's your birthday. Wow, happy birthday. Just ahead of time, unless it happened yesterday, which would be a sweet birthday, April Fool's Day. I like that. We just celebrated one last night. Uh, we had two in March. We have, or we had, uh, yeah, two in March and three coming up in April. So we are just uh, always celebrating and having birthdays. And you probably have birthday traditions like we do. One of the things we like to do is this. We love to sit around and particularly when our kids are, are young, they love to hear their birth stories, kind of the circumstances surrounding, you know, how they came into our family. So whether that was driving home from Good Sam, which was with four of our kids, or whether it was picking up in a different country through adoption and airports and all that stuff, we love to recount their birthday and just the way God brought them into our family. Kind of a unique feature of our family of late, the last six months or so, uh, we've taken to discuss around the family dinner table ways we would prefer to die. So we know we don't get a choice in how we die, but we just thought, you know, if we had to, would you do this or this? And then we also got to talking about what would be cool to honor us after after we die. And as morbid as this sounds, it takes sort of a funny, weird nuance to it. So we have some pretty amazing funerals planned. I'm not sure if in the middle of grief we'll actually get to our plans, but we've thought of some really cool ways to sort of celebrate and honor a life. I think Megan Routon was with us for dinner one night when we were discussing this. If you come visit the Carlsons for dinner, you never know what's going to be brought up. I bring up birthdays and death days because of this. Romans, the text, takes us right into life and death. And to be really specific, it actually takes us into the concept, life from death. That's where we're going with our text this morning. You know, there's a great book title by a super quirky worship leader that's also a really funny, insightful author. His name's David Crowder. And uh, just the title of this book alone made me want to read it. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Isn't that a great commentary sort of on the human condition? Can't we just write to heaven without having to go through the die part? And here's what that book touches on, and it sort of touches on, on our text as well, and that is this, that death is required for resurrection. Think about that for a second. A prerequisite to resurrection is that you die, right? And that's the part of it that gets us. That's the part, especially in in Western culture, that we recoil against, we keep at arm's length, we want to sort of push that part of it away. Here's what I want to do this morning. When you come to this church family, I'll just give you a heads up. If you're relatively new, sometimes there are things asked of you as a congregation, as a church family, that is more than other Sundays. And this is one of those Sundays. Okay, You kind of never know what you're going to get. And I know that some of you are introverts, and so this is going to push you a little bit. Your heart rate's already climbing a little bit because you're like, what's going to happen here? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at these two words on the screen, and there's a sense with the church body that we teach one another, we instruct one another. And what I'm going to do is this. I want to have you turn to about four to five to six people in your area. You can just turn around and kind of kind of form a little circle, but I want you to discuss what you know of these two terms. What are the similarities between justification and sanctification? What are some little metaphors that help you picture what the other one's about? Maybe you know nothing about these two ideas or concepts, but I want you to turn and and talk about this. Let me just put the pressure on. First service nailed this. They did amazing at this. Okay, I'll just I'm just saying a little healthy competition. So right now, take about like 15 seconds to find out who you're meeting with. Otherwise, you're only going to have about three minutes to do this. So turn right now, find someone new. Preferably someone you didn't come with and just start talking about this a little bit and see where it lands. 
Okay, stay in your groups. Stay in your groups for a second, but let me bring the plane down. Land, land your wisdom, land your thought. All right, here's what I want to do. I want to hear from some of you. In the spirit of learning, you are not looking to be profound, deep, witty. None of that needs to happen. We're just putting ideas out here. But what are some things that you heard from your group or maybe came out of your mouth that help you get your head around justification and sanctification? Let me see some thoughts. Yeah, Allie. Boom. All right. Nice. I mean, what? if Google says it's true, right? I mean, we're, we're settled on that. Listen, we're going to dismiss early. That's the whole lesson. So we're done here. Good job, Lizzie. What else? What else we got? Sanctification, justification. Okay. Yep, that idea came up from our thought too. Tegan, what you got? Yeah, so she said, this is my daughter. This is my 13-year-old. So she said that to me, and I said, what do those words mean? And she said, you should know. <laughs> this is what I live with. Go. All right. Thank you, Tegan, for that. All right. Oh, okay. Gotcha. What we, what we do when we're, when we're caught doing something we're not supposed to do. It ties into that. I would say that. Rick, there's a, there, did you hear that? There is a lot of truth in that of what you just said. Talk about a metaphor. Thank you. That's the illustration. You guys are really preaching the sermon. This is great. This is dynamite. All right. Listen, let's, let's hear it. Wonderful. Say that again. Say it again really loud. Kath. Awesome. Very helpful. Very helpful. So listen, let me, let me throw some categories out here, and I heard a lot of this as I walked around first service and second service. But look at justification as sort of dealing with the penalty of sin. That's a once-for-all-time thing, and then the power of sin is broken in sanctification. Uh, secondly, uh, that justification is a declarative act of God, whereas there's a, there's a progressive work growth over time with sanctification. Both works of God, but there's some differences there. Justification deals with the unsaved sinner. Once you become a Christian, it's not that you stop sinning, but now God's dealing with the saved sinner by growing us in holiness. And finally, um, justification results in, in salvation. Sanctification results in holiness. So very helpful, isn't it, to hear from one another and kind of get these thoughts? It's also helpful, let me just say this. Part of why it's so good to be in a community group, part of why it's so good to discuss these things around the family table and around family worship times, it is good to articulate what you believe. It can seem really clear in here, and the moment you open your mouth to start speaking it, it gets all jumbled and you're not quite sure. This is good just rehearsal to say, is this, how would I put this? How would it be helpful for me? You've probably wondered this. If I'm saved by grace, and there's no action on my part that somehow makes me holy enough for God, it's a work of God that justifies me, why even try? Why even try? Have you ever wondered that? I have. I think every person who's ever tried to follow Christ in any age has asked this question. I mean, honestly, why paddle upstream when it is so hard to live a good and virtuous life in the way Jesus called us to much of the time? Why keep paddling? Why not just lift up the paddles, go with the flow, and just make life a lot easier? You know, we preach internally around Neighborhood Bible Church. We just really value helpfulness. We value knowledge, but not all knowledge dispension can be helpful. A lot of times you can dispense a lot of truth, and what's received is guilt, condemnation, burdens being put forth. You can put out a ton of stuff that's true, but just not all that helpful. We see Jesus in the way that he taught, in the amount that he taught, in the variety of settings that he taught. He was very aware of what's most helpful, what's going to help people along in their spiritual journey, not just be true. You've only done part of the work if what you're saying or teaching is, is true. 
So we think it's really helpful to address the questions that most people don't think they should be asking in church, in church. So many people think, I probably shouldn't be thinking this, but why even try? It's hard to live an unrelenting, disciplined life. It's easier to just give in to temptation. So we want to ask the question, why even try? Because frankly, we see the Bible doing that. Would someone stand up and read uh, Romans 5.20? Romans 5.20 is where we kind of left off last week, and I just need it read out loud. And if no one's standing yet, there's still an opportunity to serve your church body by standing and reading it really loud. Romans 5.20. Let's hear it. By the way, just for the record, you guys did really good, like first service with that exercise, so thank you for that. And if you have a fear of speaking to other people, you're welcome. I helped you break that by forcing you to to do it. Jonathan, real loud. Okay, so where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The logic that could go on in the human heart is this. Well, if that's true, if God gets the most glory when the darkest sinner is saved, why not just go running after the darkness so God gets all the more glory? Do you see that logic? It's flawed, and if we're honest with ourselves, we know there's an like ulterior motive to that. But here's what Paul does. He addresses the misunderstanding in advance. So he knows that as that idea is put out to a congregation, people can begin to run in their minds. Well, fine, if, if grace is going to abound all the more, why even try? Why keep paddling upstream? It's so tiring sometimes. So he addresses it in Romans 6, one. If you're in your Bible, look at there. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If it's true that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, should we just continue in sin? He asks the rhetorical question. Of course it's a rhetorical question, and of course the answer is no. And what we would expect from Paul at this point is to use this word that we learned several weeks ago. It is the strongest negative term in the Greek language. Meganoita! Remember how fun that is to say? Meganoita! Your translation probably says by no means. It just means God forbid that that be true. Not on your life should that be the way that it goes. That's what he's saying. Previously, he had used that term to defend God's holy name. And now he's stepping in and saying, to to defend our holy conduct, say, God forbid, no, that is not how it should go. Don't you dare keep on sinning. So that's the premise to everything that's going to follow. Okay, That little conversation, that little idea piece. There's something going around the blogosphere and Christian bookstores and just sort of conversations I've had, uh, and I don't think it's new to our age. But there's a certain sense where people say this, it doesn't really matter how you live so long as your beliefs are correct. It doesn't really matter. God's not cared about the, the nitty-gritty or the labels we wear. As long as you have right theology, right basic beliefs, you're good, you're in. And here's what I would say. If that is you, if, if that's running through your brain, or if you hear this, I would put out to you that a person saying it does not matter how you live so long as you believe correctly is not following Jesus Christ. Jesus knows nothing of that. Secondly, they're not reading their Bible. Over and over and over and over again, the New Testament is built this way. Look at all the epistles. That's a fancy word for letters. All the epistles that are written, especially by Paul, are written this way. First half of Galatians, here's what's true of you, sinner. Here's what God has done for you. Receive Jesus Christ now, the second half of the letter. Here's how this fleshes out. Here's how this changes every relationship you've ever been in. Here's how this changes your relationship. 
relationship to money. Here's how this changes your career and your dreams. Here's how this changes how you handle frustration. It's about belief and then behavior. Behavior always follows. God cares intimately about how we behave and what we do with our decisions. It's life and death, in fact. So the question is this, how is the sinner to deal with sin? What is the relationship to sin once someone is in Christ? In the coming weeks, we're going to get into Romans 6, 7, and 8. A little invitation to you. I did this in high school. I read Romans 6, 7, and 8, those three chapters, every day for one month. Tons of fruit came from it. Those little chapters just spoke to so much that was going on me as a senior in high school that, that I did that, probably at, at the invitation of my youth pastor of, of, of doing that. That's where we're headed in the next several weeks. I would invite you to, to, to take that challenge up. So we're going to get to specific external how-tos of battling temptation, but first, three foundational truths that if you miss these truths, all the external tips in the world won't help you overcome temptation. If you miss the heart of this, you miss, you miss it all. And if you want Paul's sort of one-sentence summary teaching on this, just listen to Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Look at the screen for a minute. I want you to say this with me. Ready? Here we go. Dead to sin, alive to God. One more time. Dead to sin, alive to God. You have just memorized one of the most helpful daily prayers I have ever experienced. The fruit over the last, I don't know, maybe decade and a half or more that this has rolled around my heart and mind has produced tremendous fruit. It's also a powerful summary of a lot of theological truth. We're approaching Easter, and around Easter time, there's always secular and religious publications, TV shows, whatnot, asking this question, why did Jesus have to die? I hope you've wrestled with that. Why would God initiate Jesus dying? It's bloody and gross and gruesome and terrible. Jesus had to die to kill sin in me and awaken me to God. Do you see this prayer? How about this? Maybe you've asked yourself this question. Why should I think I will ever change? You ever hear that accusing tone in your head? Why should I think I will ever change? Here's why. Because I am dead to sin and I am alive to God in Jesus Christ. That's why. How about this? What should I do in this situation? I don't know what I should do. You ask yourself in that situation, what would a person who is dead to sin do? And what would a person who's alive to God do in this situation? And that will teach you. Sometimes you hold your tongue. Sometimes you loose your tongue and you start to speak. Sometimes you go left. Sometimes you go right. Sometimes you stay put. Sometimes you put it in reverse and you run the other way. That's what a person who's dead to sin would do and alive to God. There is so much daily practical help in this one small thing. We're about to take up our offering. And I'll invite the band to, to come on up right now. Um, and in many settings, money being inserted into the situation just makes things uh, really awkward. Um, uh, Jacob is sitting here in the second row. I'll pick on Jacob. Uh, but if Jacob is, is out on, on a date, and, um, and he hasn't made it clear, he's not totally sure if it's a date or not, and he's with the girl, and they're there, and then the bill comes. He's had a lovely meal with this young lady. The bill comes, and he's like, 
I'm not really sure, like, should I jump in and pay for it, or is that too forward, does that make it seem like a date? All of a sudden, money inserted into the situation can make things really weird and awkward and tense. Anyone with me on that? Okay? In a hundred settings, you add money to it, all of a sudden, friendships, family, it just, it can change things. Money in church, people get super freaked out sometimes. You add money into a worship service, you go, whoa, wait a minute, who's picking up the bill? It just adds this weird level. Let me release you of this. It doesn't have to be that way. Jesus talked super openly about money. He talked about the blessing that it is, and he talked about the curse and taskmaster that money can be. It's like all of the gifts God gives to us, we're stewards of them, and put in their right place, they're a massive blessing, no need for awkwardness. Taking the place of God, or or in its wrong place, money doesn't just get awkward, it gets downright curse-like. It becomes a curse in a relationship, it becomes poison in your life. Now, most often as a church, here's the way we take the offering. We typically build it into the worship service as more of a very private, individualized thing. We do that because we see scriptures like this, where Jesus says, don't do your good deeds before men to be noticed by them. So don't do them in such a way that it kind of like, you know, shows off. But we do all kinds of things in community that are really acts of worship. You being here at church today is a very public thing. Not one of you has come in today with a complete veil over their body. Peekaboo, guess who? Because you didn't want anyone to see who it was coming to church, right? This is a good deed. So a lot of this is internal. It's in your mind. I am here not to earn brownie points with anyone else because who cares if you're in church or not, but I'm doing this as an act of worship. Well, this morning, we're going to take up our offering in a different way. Instead of highlighting verses that that celebrate sort of the the privatized prayer closet, this is between you and me, Lord, we are going to open it up to to a communal aspect. Some of you read the post I put on the city kind of prepping you for this, um, and so so you're aware of sort of the heart and reason behind it. Um, But what we're going to do is this. I'm going to pray in just a minute, and in in just a few moments, I'm going to ask you um, to use your your whole body in, in worship this morning. Instead of just, you know, your wrist maybe putting it in as you pass a bag. When you think about Old Testament sacrifices and offerings, wasn't that a very public thing? I mean, you couldn't very well hide your, you know, your goat or something and do it in private. It was just an open thing. In the New Testament, we see people coming and, and bringing and laying property and money and valuables to say, hey, this is communal now. This no longer is, is mine. So we're going to embrace that. We're going to celebrate that this morning. Um, now, I recognize at least a couple of things. One is this. Maybe you didn't get the memo ahead of time and you say, hey, pastor, what about me? I normally give in a different way. I get paid on Friday. Usually I do it electronically and all that. Hear me. Listen. Grace and peace. Okay? This grace and peace to you, brother and sister. This is not in any way, shape, or form something to to make you feel awkward that you didn't get the memo. Secondly, I recognize in any given service there are people who just say, I'm not used to giving to the church This feels like a pressure sales job. Hear me loud and clear. Grace and peace to you. You are, we're doing it wrong if you are feeling obligated or pressured to, to, to do this. So if, so if either one of those is you, man, just, just release that. This is, this is a celebration. Here's what I want you to do. As we sing this song, we're going to sing this song that every victory is yours. Um, there is a testimony to our money. And there are some people who have been freed from stuff being their God.
And as you see people all around the room this morning stand up and worship God with their feet, with their hands, and they joyfully contribute to the work of God, I want you to see it as a testimony, an unspoken testimony of the fact that we are serving God and we've been freed from serving money. Our dependence is not on the dollar. Our our openness, our aliveness is to the generosity of God in our life. And as you put it into a piece of luggage, understand that your dollar, when you contribute in this way, has a way of traveling. There are people in this room who have been helped because you have given generously and said, hey, we're all in common. There's people in need. So there are people in this neighborhood you've never met before. They've been a, uh, you've been a tangible blessing in their life. And today, in many time zones, there are people around the world that you give to Neighborhood Bible Church, this little church continues their work and helps it go on. So it travels to prisons. It travels overseas. It travels across the street. So, agreed? All right, let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll sing. And in our day and age where knowledge is flowing at us from all over the place at all times, we can pull up little devices and get to you know any subject under the sun at all times. It's all the more important for us to be discerning about what we invest our time learning and what we invest our time thinking about. Um, our family tends to go to the beach a lot. We use our, our taxes and, and use the uh, state beach system uh, as, a, as a means of entertainment for us. And whenever we go to the beach, you know, I sit down with my kids and not all knowledge is equal, right? So if you are eating a sandwich and you set it down in the sand and then you pick it back up and eat it, it's crunchy, but it's not life-threatening, right? That's, that's good information, but I'll tell you, I never review that with my kids. I let them figure that stuff out on their own. Here's what I do because our kids go in the water. I gather them together and I review what they already know. I ask them, when you are caught in a riptide and you feel yourself getting sucked away from shore and as you swim towards the shore, you're not making any progress, what should you do? And we rehearse water safety in the ocean because with my family, the bigger the waves, the better. They love it. So we talk buddies and we talk, what should you do if you're in these situations? They always get the answer right. You know why? Because I grill this into them. But on the shore, before we're about to go, into the ocean, I review what they already know. I make sure, I drive it into their brain what they already know. And as I was thinking about this passage, that's what Paul's doing with us. He is, he is reassuring the church of truths that they already know, but they are life and death truths. This is not, you may get sand in your sandwich if you drop it. This is, you are heading out into life. And life is like an ocean. And life can be disorienting. And if you don't have these truths as the bedrock of your life, it it could be life or death for you. Here's Romans in a nutshell. Remember, apart from Christ, we collectively and me individually, we are ruined. Christ comes on the scene and He redeems. There's redemption for us as a church community. There's redemption and restoration in our families. There's restoration in our city, in our government, if if there's Christ as a part of it. We're ruined without Christ. We're redeemed with Christ. These are things you know, but you really need to know them. For Paul... Knowing is foundational to real, lasting change. Here's one of the great gifts God gives to us. God gives us answers to our questions. He gives us knowable truth. Your sanctification, that 
progress of growing in holiness is based not on feelings, not on your current circumstances, not on a whim, not on a wishful, hopeful kind of a thing, but on things you can know. Warren Wiersbe is a, um, a, uh, a commentator. He says this, if Satan can keep us ignorant, he can keep us impotent. If he can keep us ignorant, he can keep us impotent. And here's the kicker. It's not enough for your pastors to know. Kids, it's not enough for your parents to know. I can remember distinctly sitting in a church service and it hit me like a ton of bricks. God, you're doing a work in me. This is no longer my parents' religion. This is no longer me kind of riding on the coattails of my parents' strong faith in Jesus Christ. You're doing a work in me because I'm sitting in a church service. My parents have no idea whether I'm here or not. I'm not doing it for them. I'm not doing it because it's required to be in our family. I'm doing this because I want to be with the people of God and I need to hear a word from you. It's not for someone else to know, I put very clearly in your notes, know for yourself. Know for yourself. So here we go. Here are three truths. Number one is that dead means dead. All right, look at verse three. Do you not know, that's the first time of three times he's going to say the word no. Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Friends, at the heart of the Christian message is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can't really get at the story of Jesus at all Unless you talk about the resurrection. Right? Here's Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. It says, And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. If you don't mention the resurrection, it may, you miss the whole message. You miss a whole understanding of who Jesus is. That Jesus died is no big deal. Right? That Jesus died and rose again, that is a colossal truth that, if true, changes absolutely everything. What Paul does here is he cites water baptism as a beautiful picture of this reality, that we are dead to sin and that we are alive in God. Now, we have a baptistry right behind this curtain. Some of you in this room have been baptized right there. I want to take you back to your own baptism, no matter where it was or when it was. Uh, mine happened about three miles away at a church uh, over here in our neighborhood. And I can remember very clearly that God, again, was doing a work in me because I wouldn't have wanted to go up in front of hundreds of people to do anything, much less get dipped underwater and brought back up out and have to give a little testimony. That was not on my bucket list of fun things to do. But I was doing it in obedience to Jesus Christ. And I remember so distinctly going down into the water. And it represented me dying to my old self and being under the water where Jesus was in the grave. And I was so thankful that the guy baptizing me had good theology because he believed Jesus rose again. So he brought me back up. If he didn't have good theology, it would have been a fight. I would have been a fight on my hands right there. But he brought me out. And I can remember coming up and I remember being in the changing room afterwards and the words that we now get to walk in newness of life. I wasn't saved in that moment. That was just a public demonstration of a hidden reality that had already gone on in my heart. What a beautiful picture that is. What shorthand that is for the gospel message, right? 
that God has done this work in us. He's made us dead to sin and alive to Himself. If we died with Him, we will certainly rise like Him. Remember, death is required for resurrection. You can't have resurrection and still be sort of alive. That's binary, by the way. You're either dead or alive. Death is required. It's a prerequisite for resurrection. When you see something dead, you can't make it undead. Uh, whenever I talk to you on the phone, I'm probably walking around the church. That's my habit because I don't want to just sit in an office all day. So that's my opportunity to do laps. If it's a four-lap conversation, that's getting on a little bit. You know, I kind of gauge it by how many laps I've done. I'm walking over here last Tuesday, and there's this uh, sort of PG&E electric wire up there. And I noticed that on the ground was a sleeping bird. Uh, and then it dawned on me that usually birds don't sleep like this. Um, and so cover your eyes if you're sensitive. This is a dead bird. Okay, and I'm walking along, and I thought, poor little guy, you know, he's sitting there, and and here I am soaking in Romans 6, and I looked at this dead thing, and I thought, wow, when you are dead to something, when something's dead, its state is forever altered. Like, I can't do anything. I could take that bird. I could fly him around. I could flap his wings. I could get arrested. It's really bizarre if I did that, right? I could try to make him do things, but he's dead, He's fundamentally forever changed. And I looked at that little dead thing and I thought, man, when you see a dead thing, you ought to remember in your mind, Christian, you're dead to sin. That's a powerful truth to grab onto. Galatians 6.14 says this, that by the power of the cross of Jesus, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Man, that's a powerful reality. Dead means dead, but it's not the end of the story. It's also true that free means free. Look at verse 6. It's our second no. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. There's an ongoing reality that history proves, and that is this. To really live, you must be free. To really live, you must be free. People live under oppression. They say, you know what, this is no kind of life. And so they rise up risking their own life. Because to really live, you must be free. Just study your history. That's a proven point. The death of Jesus by crucifixion emancipates us. That's our freedom song. We get in on that deliverance. Remember from last week, Jesus completely wipes the guilt and penalty away so that we are left once for all, forever, and here's the word, flawless. Remember that? Man, we're flawless before God because of what Jesus did. Sin is a terrible master, a cruel boss. Some of you have gotten saved later in life. You can attest to this more than some of you who've walked with Christ for a long time. Sin is a terrible boss. Many years ago, or several years ago, I read a book called Unbroken. And then the movie came out, and it's about this guy named Louis Zamperini. And he's an Olympic runner from back in the day, and he gets drafted. And he's a, a pilot in World War II. He gets shot down, and much of the book and much of his story is him surviving or trying to survive in the Japanese prisoner of war camps. And there's one particularly cruel prison guard who's over the whole thing, and he calls the shots, and all the prisoners call him the bird. And the bird is this particularly cruel character to Louis. And there's a scene in the movie 
where the prisoners all get a sense that, wow, the bombing is getting closer and closer and closer. And then one, one point, they call all the prisoners together, and the prison guard stands up in front, and he says this, the war is over. We've lost, and you're free. And in that moment, it was this powerful picture of this reality that we see in Scripture, and that is this. Here these men were, no longer needing to take any orders from the prison guards. These prison guards ruled every ounce of their life at all times. And they were cruel. So they still had tattered clothes. They still were in the same crummy setting. They probably still had growling stomachs. They had dirty faces. But guess what? Their spirits soared. Why? Because they were freedmen. Do you see it? That's the Christian life for us. There's a future reality that's going to have a, a culminating effect where we're finally free completely. But in this moment, those guys no longer had to take any orders from the prison guards. Free means free, friends. That means you have a say when sin comes and barks orders at you. The old you was enslaved. The new you is set free from that. Let me give you one more. Victory means, can you guess it? You see a pattern here. I'm not being tricky. Victory means victory. Look at verse 9. Here's the third no. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Like us here in this room, um, we mourned as a country collectively early this year uh, as the Patriots won a Super Bowl again. Um, and through the tears, um, we, see, I see some nodding heads. Uh, through the tears, I didn't even care about either one of those two teams, and I found myself in deep mourning. Um, through the tears, what we realized is this. There's a finality to it. When one team has more points than the opposing team, and the clock reads zero, game over. It's settled. Whoever's the winner is the winner. Whoever's the loser is the loser. And it's over and done with once for all time. You can't go back and make the Patriots unwin a Super Bowl as much as some people in this country would love to do that. So it is with the victory that Christ has for us. Sin and death have lost. Christ has won. And Christians rejoice. We talk sometimes about baptism as sort of pulling on a jersey that represents that we're on Jesus' team. There's a very public a proclamation that goes on, even if you don't say a word, you pull on the Jesus jersey, you immediately have the opposition targeting you. It's visible. You immediately stand with those who wear the Jesus jersey and you say publicly, this is whose team I am publicly declaring that I am on forevermore. And to the victory go the spoils. So in Christ, you have dominion over death and sin. In Christ, you have won. Game over. It is settled for all of time. And that's the good news. So it's not just about what we know. Look at verse 11. We're also to consider some things. This verse is so powerful. Verse 11. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear the command here? You must do this. Kids, look at me. Before you go in the ocean, you must do some things. I don't care about your sandwich. That's not important. You must do this. This is life or death. I want to remind you of an ancient Roman idea, this, this idea, logizomai. And that was this whole idea of, of reckoning or considering. 
and it's, and it's the, the crediting of an account. We learned it a few weeks ago. Now, every time that you hold a check and you treat that check like it's cash, you're living out the principle that's, that's, that the idea here is. You are considering that as if it's already cash. It's not cash in your hand. I was a banker for six years. I can guarantee you that's not cash. But you reckon that as cash. You consider it as cash. Where'd that check go? I haven't cashed it yet. I need that money, right? That's the idea of logizomai. That's what he's getting at here. So consider yourselves as if you already have the cash in hand. Consider yourselves. Know that it's true that you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. I want to invite you to do the same thing I've done for many years. And although it's happened for a long time, it hasn't become stale. It hasn't become ritual. In fact, it's just life-giving. And that is this. What if tomorrow morning, before your feet hit the ground in the morning, you were just to pray this simple prayer as a Christian? God, today I just say it to you. I recognize it in my heart. I am dead to sin right now. And I'm alive to you. Before your feet even hit the ground. You haven't done anything good for God. You haven't done anything bad for God. You're just laying in bed. You just woke up. I'm dead to sin. I'm alive to you today, God. Can I invite you into that? It will change the way you go about your day. That is that has borne so much fruit in my life, stemmed off of this one verse in Scripture. So the first command has to do with our mind. The second one has to do with our heart, that we consider these realities to be true. And the third one has to do with our will. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this. It says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Go back to the prison guard thing for a second. The prison guard gives orders when the, when the, the war has been won. You don't have to listen anymore. You're freed from that. That's the reality that you live under. This idea of present yourself to God means to give yourself to, to offer yourself to, to yield control to. It's very much like a gift, isn't it? It's like a present that you would, you would present yourself. I want you to think of it in these terms. Think of it in terms of availability. What would it look like if you began to not avail yourself to sin and avail yourself to God? What if that just became your daily prayer? You say, God, at all times, I want to not be available to sin. I don't want to run sin's errands. I don't, I don't want to live that life anymore. I'm not a tool for, for, for Satan. I'm not a tool for unrighteousness. Instead, I'm going to make myself available. What I know is this. We already know what to do with this. If you struggle with eating too much, let's take a really safe topic. If you struggle with eating too much, don't start a Bible study at Krispy Kreme. Does that make sense? That's just good wisdom, Right? If you struggle with eating and it's become more of a comfort to you or an idol or something like that, then what you do is this. You take your pre-dinner prayer. Instead of just giving thanks, you invite God into that meal. And as Colossians tells you, you do everything, whether you're eating or drinking. You do it all to the glory of God. You say, God, you're invited here. I want you to be pleased with what's going on here, with even what I eat and even what I drink and the amounts that I eat and drink. If spending is a problem for you, let me give you a little tip. If you have an iPhone, you push on the Amazon app, you hold it. It starts to jiggle. When it jiggles, there's an X. Hit the X, poof, gone. Right? If you live at the mall, and you shouldn't live at the mall, move out of the mall. 
right? Don't go there. Just, just say no. That's not making yourself available to it anymore. And so you just say, God, I want, it. I want stuff to be stuff. I want God to be God. I want relationships to be relationships. Spending and eating might be a little bit safer. How about lust? Right? How about pride? Drivenness? What about really asking God, search my soul. I want my heart not to be broken. I can put on a good show to people. I don't want that anymore. I want you to take away anxiety, my, my longing to control everything around me. God, my passion for my timing to be what's ruling and not anyone else's. Whatever it might be for you, worry. Go read the Ten Commandments. You'll find something. And just say, God, I don't want to be available to that anymore. I want to be present to you. What God wants from your body is not to be an instrument for unrighteousness, but one for righteousness. Let me invite the band to come on up. This passage ends with a really profound promise. I want you to look at it in verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. It's a declarative statement. Since you are not under law, but under grace. Is there anything for us to do in this verse? No. The thing we're supposed to do in verse 11 is consider these truths. But 14 is just a declarative promise that washes over the heart of God's people. Remember last week that in Adam we all get a death sentence. In Christ we get this life sentence, this opening to a new way of living. Here's your application for the week. Are you ready? Go and live dead to sin and go live alive to God this week. That's it. I'll tell you what sometimes I think we long for. We long for this. What I just gave to you is way harder, takes way more effort on your part, and is way more nebulous than this. Write this down. Here's six steps to a better attitude. And sometimes in church, here's what we do. Oh, I need that. I've got a bad attitude. We write down the six things. By Tuesday, we think we've nailed the list. Reality is, four or five of those, we didn't even struggle with at all. We didn't change a single thing. What's worse is after we think we've nailed the list, we look at everyone else and go, number three, right there. Number two is happening right there. You go back to your list. We end up with a worse attitude than when we were given the six steps to a better attitude. You know what Jesus called that? Dead religion. It's the reputation of being right, but inside you're, you're, you're full of dead bones. You're like a graveyard inside. Way more profound, way harder to say, God, this week I want to live dead to sin and alive to you in all that that means. Maybe there is an attitude adjustment needed. I'm not discounting that. We're about to sing this song. It's kind of just really a moving song to me. Super powerful lyrics. And I want you to understand that what we just did was we saw the bedrock theological foundation truth to what we're about to sing. This isn't whimsical, emotional, I hope that's true. This is true. And we're going to consider it being true by singing these lyrics. Here's what's powerful about it. We get to a bridge and it talks about, uh, it, it, it calls up the notion of the Israelites who were set free from actual physical captivity in Egypt. Remember this? Say yes. yes. 
Thank you. Good. So they're set free from captivity. They butt up against the Red Sea and they're being chased by their enemies. What does God do? He opens the way that was impossible to pass on their own. As I meditated on this song and I sort of juxtaposed it with the passage this week, I saw the parting of the Red Sea as justification. God, you have parted away in the cross that was immovable for me. I had no way forward. You opened a way for me to walk through. And you know what closed up behind all of their enemies? Gone. Forever. You know what sanctification is in that picture? You're standing on the shores. You've just celebrated. God, you saved our lives. What's sanctification, friends? Think about it. Now go and possess the promised land. Go and live as if we've already won because I promised it to you. That means there are journeys to take. There are battles to fight and win. There are hardships to endure. And I looked at that. I thought, that's my life right now. That's the Christian life. I'm going to go and logizomai. I'm going to consider this already true. I know you've proven justification. I'm going to go on to live and grow in holiness and sanctification and walk forward on trust and faith. So let's sing this song together, church, and lift our voices and let it be uh, just a testimony to consider these truths reality. Mm-hmm.